not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Weakness head on. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety nearly a decade ago on my blog Unpickled and in the books that I write, two of them so far and more on the way at jeanmccarthy.ca. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I'm holding space for Dr. Alice Kirby. Now, Dr. Alice is of the Kirby Method Consulting, and she is host of Beyond the Pink Cloud podcast. She's a doctor of physical therapy and a recovery coach who specializes in somatic experiencing trauma therapy. She's going to educate us about what this tool is and how we use it, and she's also going to share her story. Dr. Alice, welcome to the Bubble Hour. It's such a pleasure to be here, Jean. I, I remember listening to the show when I was really new in my own recovery and didn't, you know, and I, I really didn't know anything because I was just trying to stay sober at that point. So it's really, it feels really nice to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I love to hear that. I, I love how our lives overlapped and how how each of us, you know, we start out as almost strangers. You know, we discover these podcasts or the work that other people are doing and we think, oh, that's neat. And we look into it and then you know, here down the road, here we are talking and interacting as real live humans. <laughs> I know. It's, it's really kind of cool. Amazing. Yeah. It is. I, I have this belief that anyone can do anything with five phone calls, five or six phone calls. You can accomplish just about anything. But now that we have the internet, and I mean, it's not like it's new, but now that we have the internet and particularly the recovery-friendly internet, we just really have the world at our fingertips. And, and this community is so kind and generous when it comes to sharing and helping one another. So it's pretty amazing. And I'm glad you're here to talk about what you do. Thank you. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Let's start by getting to know you. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Sure. Thanks, Jean. So um, that was a great intro. I'm Dr. Alice Kirby. And I guess I'll talk a little bit, just share my story with my own journey, like through addiction and recovery. I actually just wrote a, a kind of a personal essay in about sort of my beginning with alcohol. And I remember the the first time I took a drink, I was on this trip in Spain and I was about 14. It was a, a big school trip and some, some girls from Puerto Rico were also there and they were, they were, I think a little older than me, but we ended up getting some rum and, and having a few drinks. And I, I don't remember a lot about that trip really, or even about that drinking. And, you know, we didn't get drunk or anything like that, but I do remember the feeling and I remember the the warmth and I, you know, maybe because I, I do the somatic work now, I'm really very sensory oriented. And I can, if I think about it, I can remember that sense of like warmth spreading through my chest with that first drink. And, and so, you know, I didn't know at that time that I was going to have a problem with alcohol, but as I, you know, made my way through high school, I definitely got introduced to, like partying and drinking. And I always just really liked it. I'm, I was a shy kid. I'm sort of a shy person by nature. And it was a way for me to be more comfortable in social settings, to be more expressive, to be less inhibited, all of those, you know, great things that seem to make alcohol work really, really well for, for a while. 
so I kind of dabbled in that, like high school, I had some difficulties. I, I ended up actually dropping out of college after, um, this seems so long ago. It's, I almost feel like I'm telling someone else's story. Cause this is like the, the more removed part of it. You know, when I was 18, I went to college and I dropped out after a semester. A, I just shouldn't have been there. It wasn't really where my heart wanted to be. I really wanted to be traveling, but I thought, you know, you, you graduate from high school, you go to college and, you know, I ended up hooking up with a guy who was really into heroin and I started sort of dabbling and, and heroin and my drinking just got worse. And, you know, it wasn't great. It was a pretty depressing time really. And so I dropped out of college. It was a big, horrible series of events back then. And, you know, at that point, that probably would have been a really good time to take a look at myself and see like, huh, I seem to have a problem <laughs> with substances and addiction. And to some extent I did. I really, I, I moved on from that. I did, I did start traveling and I, I didn't really drink a lot for the next few years. I would drink on occasion. Um, I traveled all over the country you know, I stayed in hostels and I was like road tripping around the U.S. and camping and checking out national parks and different state parks and, you know, just hiking and exploring beautiful places, really. And, and I don't remember alcohol really being a big part of that journey at all. I spent a lot of time alone. And I know that was sometimes challenging just to balance, I guess, um, having a lot of time for myself, but then also feeling lonely. And I ended up in Southern California at the Ojai Foundation and it was uh, this spiritual retreat center. So I did a work exchange program there and was introduced to a lot of really neat healing modalities. We had Native American healers would come there and we would do sweat, lodge, sweat lodges and different ceremonies. But I do remember alcohol wasn't a big part of my life there. But when it was around, like on the few occasions where we would go out or we would, ha we would drink there, it was always an excess for me. And I would get really excited about it. So I think even at that point, I don't know that I recognized it, but looking back now, I can really see, I never had a normal relationship with alcohol. It was very all or nothing, even when it wasn't a huge part of my life. So that was a pretty neat experience. And after that, I went up to Northern California. I went to massage school, same kind of thing. Drinking wasn't a big part of my life then. I was really involved in the healing arts. I was studying Chinese medicine and meditating and exploring, again, just some different philosophies of, of health and healing. But then again, when we would drink, I remember my, my good friend, Jason, who's also in recovery, but we would, we would get whiskey sometimes, you know, and we would like hang out on the top of this mountain and drink whiskey. And we were surrounded by, you know, pot fields. So we would smoke weed and it was like pretty fun actually at the time, but it was the same sort of, I had the same kind of attitude around drinking where it was all or nothing. So again, it wasn't that much of a, of a thing in my life, but it, when it was in my life, the relationship wasn't healthy. And from there I ended up um, moving over to Hawaii. And that's really where I think I started drinking more regularly. It was more a part of my life. There were more events of getting in fights with friends, arguing, having issues with my boyfriend at the time, just some of that, that drunken behavior that starts to happen where we don't quite remember, we don't really feel good about it, but it, for me, it didn't seem like it was that big of a problem. And so I kind of carried on in that vein and I lived there for a few years and really had a lovely time. I mean, it was, it was great to live in Hawaii and to be young and in love and like playing on the beach. I was surfing. It was, it was a really a special time in my life, but alcohol was a big part of it too. I lived with roommates and we would have parties and, you know, it, it wasn't as all pervasive as it eventually became, but it was in there, you know, and it was something I looked forward to. 
I remember one day I had the afternoon off and I was just drinking like Corona's and hanging out on the couch and, and talking to my boyfriend at the time. And I was like, I'm kind of bored and I'm just drinking. I don't know why. And he's like, well, you equate it with having fun. So that's probably why. And I was like, oh, I think you're right. But I didn't do anything to change that at that time. So you know, eventually I, I moved back East. I'm from Virginia and I decided I wanted to go to school and become a doctor. I got really focused and I wanted to broaden my scope of practice. I was working as a massage therapist, doing some like nutritional consulting and, you know, wellness coaching type stuff. But I really wanted to just to deepen my own understanding of the, of the human body and of how I could be of service and, and really help more people. So I went to school for the next really eight years and I ended up going the the physical therapy route. It was a good fit for me. I think during this time is really where I think my drinking just felt more and more out of control, particularly the last few years of my doctorate program. I, I was having really horrible anxiety throughout this, especially the last year was just really bad. I look back on it and I I can like watch my own body sort of respond to the memory of it where I do, I have some PTSD from it. And it was just a rough time really to get through this intensive program. And, um, and I was self-medicating with alcohol because I had horrible anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. My insomnia was through the roof. And so I would drink and it became really, really apparent that this was not only not helping me, but it was, it was leading me down this path of destruction, I lost a couple of really close friendships through my drinking at that time. And like, I knew that I had a problem. I had gotten to the point where I was like, okay, this is, I'm probably an alcoholic. This isn't healthy, but I could also sort of justify it with saying like, well, that's just who I am. And this is just how things are. And I just have to get through this program and then maybe things will be better because I won't be under so much stress and I won't have, you know, this anxiety and I'll be able to sleep. Like at that point, I really just wanted to rest. I remember I was doing a clinical rotation, like one of my internships at this hospital in Northeast DC. And I would walk there every day and it was summer. So it was muggy and hot. And I would look at the ambulances there and I'm like, maybe I could just like get hit a little bit by a car or by an ambulance, like not enough to really do damage, but enough where I could just like have a reason to lay down and rest for a while. Cause I, I wasn't sleeping well. And that took such a toll, I think on, on everything, my mental health, my physical health. And then really, I, I just kept trying to self-medicate with alcohol. And that was not a good strategy. <laughs> it really didn't work very well. I mean, it kind of helped for a while. I don't know if I had a nervous breakdown, but I definitely had some you know moments where I went in to see my advisor and I couldn't stop like crying and shaking and and I just didn't know what to do. You know, I think now that's why I am so passionate about sharing the work that I do and working with the nervous system, because I think at the core of many of our issues, we have this. I know I had my, my system was just felt so fragmented and like I, it was split into a million pieces and so raw and like there was no way to, to soothe myself or to calm it down without alcohol, which really wasn't helping, but that's that's what I thought would help. So, so anyway, I got through that though. I got through it. I took my board exams. I had to take them twice, but I got it done. Um, I was, I think in spite of it all, I was a good clinician. I really care about, you know, working with my patients. I was really interested in, in medicine and PT. So I always enjoyed patient care and, you know, I wasn't drinking before work or anything like that. So I could kind of pull myself forward with that of like, okay, I'm doing a good job at work. I'm, I'm making these things happen. And 
So I started my first job. I had I'd met my partner in San Francisco. I'd been I took two months off after school to go to travel really and to just take a break, which was great. And so I did some backpacking in Hawaii and there I, I drank too much on the trail, got so sick. I thought we were going to have to get helicoptered out. And again, that would have been a really good time to take a look at myself and say, Oh, I have a problem. (laughs) This is, this isn't working. My relationship with alcohol is detrimental. And, you know, I, I sort of did, but also didn't. It was like, it wasn't painful enough for me at that time to make a change, which is just kind of a shame, you know? I mean, I don't really regret anything because I don't see the point in it, but I do like to encourage other other people that if, you know, if things are just kind of bad, that's that still could be enough to make a change if, if you're not happy. But I did that trip anyway. I survived. It was fine. We didn't have to call a helicopter. It was just a rough few days. I had alcohol poisoning in the middle of, you know, nowhere where there was no cell service. And, uh, like six miles into this 11 mile hike, which was really like, when I think about it, I'm like, God, that was lucky that we were okay. But I made my way back to Virginia. I got my first job. I had met a man in San Francisco, my partner, and that was really sweet. And, um, he didn't drink. And I remember our first conversation I was drinking and I, we started talking about it and I was like, Whoa, you don't drink. That's so cool. Like, tell me about it. And I was really interested. And he still to this day isn't a big drinker. He could take it or leave it which I found fascinating. I was like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. How do you do that? So we fell in love and ended up, you know, moving back to Virginia together where I got my first job and he'd been traveling. So he, you know, got his job. We were both doing interviews. And then like, I think a year later, stuff just really blew up. We ended up moving out to California and my drinking was just progressing and progressing and progressing. And I would, I was blacking out be like multiple times a week. And I couldn't remember anything. I would have conversations with people, have no recollection of it. It just got really bad. And I felt horrible all the time. My stomach was a mess all the time. And my partner eventually like couldn't take it anymore. So he's like, well, we, I I can't do this. So we ended up breaking up. And for me, that really put me in enough pain that I ended up quitting. I ended up getting into recovery really soon thereafter. And it was tough. I mean, that was really hard. Even just thinking back, my heart still feels so heavy with those memories because it was it was just a difficult time. I, I got on a plane. I flew to Hawaii like randomly because I was like, I got to get away. I need some space. And I spent a couple days over there just really maybe having my last hurrah, hitting my bottom. It was tough. But then I came back and I realized it was time to make a change. And, um, you know, when my good friend who I mentioned said, well, why don't you just go to, um, a 12 step meeting and just check it out and just listen. And I did, and it was a speaker meeting and it was this big, huge conference. It was like an LGBTQ conference. And I just went, I didn't know anyone. It was in my town. And I heard this guy speak, who was a friend of my friends. And it was so amazing to me because I, I remember like feeling hopeful as a lot of people describe in the recovery community when, when they hear someone else tell a story that feels so resonant, you know, and I, I heard him, parts of his story were like my story and I was like, whoa, it's not just me. I'm not crazy. Like, oh, I get it. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. And it was like something really clicked for me that was so helpful and that I could, I realized like other people went through this and other people found a way out of it, which was like, I didn't think there was a way out. I didn't know what it was. I felt really lost. And so it was great to, to go and hear this guy. And I'm still in touch with him today, actually, the speaker at that meeting. 
which is just, you know, like this connections we talked about in the beginning, it's very sweet when, when we have those and to say like, man, you really like listening to you three and a half years ago or so changed my life. And it really did. And so from then I started, I was really active in 12 step recovery for probably my first couple years. And it was great for me. I, I got, I got my life back. I, you know, I did, I just did a lot of stuff with other sober people. Initially, I went to a lot of meetings. I had a sponsor and I I did the 12 step path for a while. And then sort of the past year and a half or so, I've kind of broken away from that. And with studying and doing more of the somatic experiencing work, I feel like a lot of my sort of the recovery work that I do, or just really my, the work on my, on my life so that I stay sober is, um, is really somatic in nature. And and I have a community of really awesome sober women, which is, I think, the most important thing, whether that's an online community or an in-person community. And I'm lucky that I have both. Really, really lucky. I have a group of women I meet with once a week here. We were meeting in person. Now we're back online, but I think we'll be back in person soon, which is incredible. And, and having that support feels so grounding to me just to be able to meet with these women once a week and share you know, what's happening in our lives and sometimes we it's not even a ton about recovery. Sometimes it is, um, but it's really about being able to share, I think, whatever is going on so that we we know we're not alone. It's like the same feeling I got at that initial meeting of just knowing there's other people that can relate to me so that I can keep moving forward and um, and I don't have to drink. And I can honestly say that I... I don't miss drinking at all at this point. I, this year I started dabbling in, in non-alcoholic beers, which I know that's not for everyone. And it was a really kind of a scary thing for me at first. I'm like, oh my God, is this going to be a huge trigger? And so I was like, you know, I, I trust myself a lot. So I was like, well, you can try it and you can see, and you have to listen to yourself and tell your you know support about it. And so I did. And but now I have to say, I really enjoy that there is, cause I, I loved beer. And so I love that there's these really great crafts, non, non-alcoholic beers that I can drink and there there's no, I don't get a buzz. I don't have to deal with the alcohol, but I get this nice flavor that I really enjoy. So that's been kind of cool for this year to take some delight in that and to also be really clear in that I'm not looking for booze at all. I don't miss it. I love being clear and just being like in my body and really trusting myself, which is something I think I looked for for such a long time. And I can honestly say now I do trust myself uh, a lot and I really love myself a lot. And it's just an easier way to go through life. So, I mean, I'm really grateful because just even telling this story, I'm like, oh, I'm sweating. (laughs) So much of that was so hard. And it's easy to forget sometimes when life is going really well, like it is now, you know, I'm a happy person. Uh, I I have a lot of wonderful things in my life. But it's it's really, I think, good just to remember to be grateful for all of it because it was really hard for quite a while. And alcohol is, it's a tough one, man. It will take you down. And I think just for anyone listening, if that any part of that story resonated with you, it's not you, you know? I think a lot of us go through it and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. And for me, that was a really big realization too. Like I remember reading a pamphlet or a 12-step pamphlet, my second meeting and being like, oh, I'm not a horrible person. And that was a really nice pathway forward. I love that you say that because that was a light bulb moment for me too. That I think the the idea of the label of alcoholic, the way I understood it was that there's something wrong with you and you've somehow turned bad. You've turned into this alcoholic, this sick person. And 
Mm-hmm. You just remind us all that alcoholic alcohol is addictive. So we shouldn't be surprised when people get addicted to it. That's the normal outcome of engaging with an addictive substance. So we know that when people dabble with cigarettes or crack cocaine, it's like, hey, don't do that. It's addictive. You're gonna you don't want to get hooked on that. But for some reason, we yeah. feel like we all should be able to dabble with alcohol and not have the course of the nature take its course, which is that you would become addicted to an addictive substance. And I, I'm on this mission that we sometimes call people that that drink without getting addicted, we call them normies. And I, I always say, we're the normies. Right. <laughs> Getting addictive is the normal thing. They're abnormal for Mm -hmm. using alcohol without getting addicted to it. And when you flip at the script and think of it that way, it, it is such a light bulb moment. The clarity that you say, you know, you said that you love being clear and you love being in your body and trusting yourself. And yet, I think for a lot of us, the experience is that we drink so that we don't feel that way because being clear is painful. So Mm -hmm. what is it for you that makes it that it's not painful anymore to be clear and in your body? Why do you not need to numb out anymore? What's different? I don't want to sound like a poster child for somatic experiencing, but (laughs) doing that work really changed my life. It's why I went on to study study it, and it's why I'm so passionate about sharing it. I started working with the therapist who I just found randomly, um, and thank God for her. She, I saw her, I think twice before I got sober. And I remember one of them was like right after everything had hit the fan and my, you know, my partner and I were splitting and everything was so rough. And I was just like cried the whole time. But after that, I got, I got into recovery and I stopped drinking. And so she introduced me to the somatic experiencing work and it really started to help me to feel okay in my body. And it was amazing. And for me, I think this was such a a pivotal part of my recovery was being able to be okay in my body. Because I think for a lot of us, it's not okay. We don't know how to do it. We're never taught how to do it. When we are in here, it feels scary. But this work is so gentle. You know, it's this concept called titration where you just slowly, slowly work with things. So you're not blowing the system wide open. You're building the capacity to be okay of showing up in your body. And so I did that work with her. I mean, I still see her regularly because I love I love doing the work with a practitioner. But after about a year... I really noticed like how my anxiety patterns were different. Like I would have, I would be able to identify the pattern when it was happening and I, but I wouldn't have to be as sucked in by it. I wouldn't have to be as reactive to it. I was able to identify other areas in my body that weren't as affected by the pattern. And when I say the pattern, I guess I'm talking about the, for me, my own personal experience with anxiety was that it would present where I'd have a ton of tightness in my chest. I would feel really almost like I was being sucked in. Um, and so like everything would really contract and kind of pull me in. My shoulders would curl forward. It would be like this, this heaviness would kind of come down on me and things would get very swirly and overwhelming inside. And I didn't know how to deal with that. But in doing this work, I was able to, to more sort of recognize, okay, this is what's happening. The tightness in my chest is occurring. I'm feeling this swirliness. I feel like I'm going to get sucked in, but I I had better tools or I could ground myself or I could recognize a part of my body that wasn't as affected and hang out in that area. And, um, and then the anxiety pattern slowly over time really loosened its grip. As I'm saying this now, I'm like, when's the last time I've really had that? And it's been, 
it's been a while. I think I can remember a time maybe six months ago, I sort of got sucked in a little bit. And even now when it does happen, if there's a big event, I, I'm much better able to recognize what's happening so that I, it just doesn't completely take me over. So that was a bit of a tangent, but that, that work helps me just a ton to be okay in my body. That feeling you describe, that is my, that is my state almost all the time. And I'm better at noticing it and and reminding myself I'm okay. There's no tiger coming towards me. Mm-hmm. But I, I really do feel that way a lot. Often even in my sleep, I'll wake up and feel myself feeling that way. So I know I've got some work to do. And I feel like I have a lot to learn from you. So I want to say, explain it to me like I'm five. <laughs> sure. What I'll does try. this mean? What is somatic experiencing trauma therapy? What is that? How does it work? Sure. So I will do my best to, um, to explain it. And I'm a, I'm an advanced level student in somatic experiencing. So that means I've gone through two years of training in this modality after spending the year, just kind of working with my therapist on my own stuff. And so I have two more modules to go before I'm a full-fledged practitioner. So I'm not, you know, the, the top expert in this, in this field by any means, but it's something I care about a great deal because of my own experience. So I do put a lot of time and energy into, you know, continuing my education with it as well as working with my own clients. So that's my disclaimer to say there are probably better explanations out there, but so somatic experiencing is this modality that was developed by Dr. Peter Levine, and he's written quite a few books um, on the topic and he's, you know, pretty brilliant for creating this modality and what it is, is it's, it's called a, a bottom up modality so that instead of working with like our cognitive brain, as in something like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is more of a top down modality that works more with the, the conscious brain. And then we try to affect the system through changing our, our cognitive mind. This modality works with our autonomic nervous system and more of our reptilian brain or our brainstem, sort of our brain structures that are below the level of our conscious awareness to, um, to implement change. And so we work with the imprint of the trauma on the physiology and in doing so, and in working with what's showing up in the body in the here and now, we're able to affect some of these patterns that get really stored in quite deeply, like my own anxiety pattern, um, maybe yours, this, these like recurring patterns that got dialed in, you know, maybe through a single traumatic incident, or maybe just through sort of the, the behaviors and the, the, the environment that we grew up in that might not necessarily seem traumatic, but sort of a lot of things that got reinforced over time when we were kids, um, for example, like I grew up in a household that was very traditional where my mom didn't really work outside the home. My dad was the breadwinner. And I see how this kind of behavior shows up in, in some of the, like my own issues. Like I really, for me, it's a really big deal to be heard and to be heard by the men in my life. And I feel like I picked some of that up from seeing this, this sort of, um, familiar structure where I think it was, my mom probably didn't feel heard a lot because she wasn't the one bringing in the money. So things like that, I use that as an example from my own life to say that, you know, when we talk about trauma or when we talk about patterns being stored, it doesn't necessarily have to be this big, huge event, or it doesn't have to be years of significant abuse. It can be these more subtle things that get dialed into us. 
So can it be behavioral then as well as physical? So not just a physical response like racing hard and chest tightening, but uh, maybe um, an anger response to a dynamic in a relationship or does it, is it only physical? No, I mean, I think the behavioral and the emotional components go along with it. In this work, I think we just focus more on like the raw data, which is what's happening in the physiology instead of try, but I, but I will say like the raw data can lead to some behavioral things. Sure. You know, you want to like punch a wall or you're constantly fighting for some, someone, or maybe you move every time life gets uncomfortable because you have a massive flight response happening that's playing out through your body. So I think the, like the behavioral responses are, this is my understanding. Again, I'm, I'm not an expert. The behavioral responses will come as a, like as a result of some of the physiology and I will say, if we actually pause and work with the physiology, the behavioral responses will most likely lessen or change. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's such a piece that we're missing a lot of. It's like this idea of, can we just pause and be present with what is and notice what the heck's happening in our body for just a minute? You know, can we just stick with it? Can we observe it? Not trying to figure out why, not trying to push it away, not trying to label it even or say it's this emotion because of this happened. It's like, no, just is it tight? Is it loose? Does it feel warm? Just simply being with the sensation, being aware of what we're feeling. It's actually a term for that. It's called interoception, this idea of being aware of what we're feeling in our bodies. Um, and it it's affects, it actually affects this part of the brain called your right insular cortex, So people that practice this concept of interoception, um, they've actually shown in MRI studies, they have a thicker right insular cortex, which is also found in long-term meditators. So I think this is a good thing to have, um, to be able to do this practice of, of observing, okay, what's happening and can I just be present with it? So is there, are there steps beyond that? So noticing and then being patient and present with it. And then is there... Is there a system of what to do next to plug into, or is that it? Is that the whole secret is just sitting with it? There's definitely a lot more that goes into it. Um, and this is kind of just the sort of the starter, like introduction. And that's why it is really, really good to work with a practitioner, um, whether it's a therapist or anyone who's been trained in this modality, because it's, especially if we are working with more like intense trauma memories, things like that, we want to be careful and go in and you don't want to go to the most intense sensation you have and just tell someone like, if anyone's trying this at home, please don't do that. <laughs> like, Don't go to like your most intense place and try to just be with the sensation. That's really challenging for your system. So we want to start with like smaller, more titrated things. And really one of my favorite ways to tell people to begin practicing this, if you want to try this on your own and, and just start to come into your body a little bit more is to notice when you feel pleasant or when you feel, you know, quote unquote Mm. good or when you feel like yourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe even, even think about it now, you know, see Jean, if you can think of a time when you, you have a memory like that, like of experiencing yourself in a way that, you know, either feels relaxing or energetic and just notice what physiological things happen in your body as you explore that memory. You know, as soon as you said that, the first thought that came to mind was that I started to notice after I quit drinking, my laughter, when I would laugh uninhibited 
and feel no shame or pulling back on it. You know, after you've had a few drinks, your I at least would would really govern my laughter because I was afraid of cackling or I was afraid of people knowing how much I'd had to drink and I never felt like I could laugh freely. And also I was so profoundly sad and shameful Mm. that laughter didn't come easily. And when I really felt the freedom of that first laugh, I thought, oh my gosh, does this feel good? Wow, I forgot how good it feels to laugh. And it was magical. Mm-hmm. And I still sometimes, I don't have the same wonder now because I'm a little more used to how it feels to be me without alcohol after 10 years. <laughs> it's starting to feel normal. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. <laughs> but I do still I do still feel gratitude for it and think, oh, this feels so good. I love laughing. And uh, so, you know, that's a moment. But it, we have so many moments like that during the day, right? The first sip of coffee, a nice hot mm-hmm. shower, crawling into bed. There's so many moments of goodness in a day. Yeah. And and can we begin to implement this practice of slowing them down and of noticing what's going on in our in our bodies? Like what is happening in our physical sensations as we enjoy that first sip of coffee. And I love that you say the shower because it's one of my favorite places to tell people to practice. I'm like, notice the hot water and get some soap you really like and like really just explore what it's like to lather up your skin. Or if you use a scrub, you know, what does that feel like? And, and like engage in the sensory experience of it because what that does not only is it, is it's, you know, so fun and pleasant in the moment, but it also expands our our nervous system's capacity to hold more of that kind of experience. So then we build more of that into our lives because we've built, it's like if you, I'm moving my hands here, but I know you can't see me. If you think of sort of this, if your hands kind of going out and then coming back in and this expansion and contraction, which is really the, you know, the natural way of the the universe, I guess. But our, our nervous systems are the same where we can sort of expand to hold, you know, so much, good or so much of, you know, even if, if we think about it conversely from like a trauma standpoint, we can only deal with so much and then we just sort of shut off and dissociate or shut down or, or whatever it is we do. But it's the same sort of works for the good, right? We can, we can teach ourselves and we can build our capacity to hold more of these pleasant sensations and, and feelings of goodness that go with it by practicing it. And it's, it sounds so simple, but honestly, I was really surprised when I first started doing this work, how difficult this was for many, many people. Because what happens a lot of times is there'll be this sense of like, oh, if I feel too good, like something bad's going to happen, right? So it's that expansion and then that it wants to instantly contract real small, you know, other shoes going to drop kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But what happens when we practice, and again, that idea of titration, a little drop at a time, like in the you know chemistry lab, when you're doing an experiment, um, you just do one drop at a time, just expand a little bit each day, a little bit more. And then, you know, next thing you know, we can walk around feeling good most of the time, which is great. It's, it's way better. <laughs> it strikes me as you say that, I think of two, th- two reasons why... I stopped myself from feeling good. And one is exactly what you said. It was that fear of I need to stay hypervigilant mm-hmm. because something bad could happen to me or to someone else. I'd have to say that in my recovery, I've learned to relax a little bit with my own well-being and trust myself more. But I notice when I'm around my grandkids, and I've noticed this more because I don't get to see them very much right now with COVID, that 
as soon as I'm around them and I love them, but I feel this anxiety come into my body of the overwhelming urge to protect them. And I, I can feel my, the, mm. this, the switches coming on in my head of this hypervigilance. Uh, and maybe it's just because I forget how hard it is to be a young mom, and <laughs> you know, pay attention to everything. Uh, I've gotten relaxed yeah. in my old age, but I can just feel it's like my brain's starting to light up with all of this worry and awareness. I guess anxiety is what that is. And then the second part of that to me is also shame of somehow I associate a little bit of shame with feeling too good, feeling too relaxed, too much enjoyment. So Mm -hmm. how do we connect the things that the brain wants to do, the thoughts with what the body is doing? How do we bridge that gap? I really think it comes down to practice and, and, and slowly but surely, you know, it's, it's a little bit at a time. I think one of the things that you were mentioning with your grandkids too, I can speak to that of like, okay, switching into that threat response. And a lot of us will do this in different, you know, walking down the street where it's like, okay, let me look out for in case. And sometimes we need to be on the lookout, right? If it's a dark alley at night, yeah, please be on alert and, you know, notice what's around you. Um, I'm not saying, you know, tune out and live in la la land at all, but we can, we can do both, you know? Um, and one of the the things that you might try practicing with your grandkids or for anyone in a similar situation is to also notice some of the things that are good in the environment. You know, maybe there's a really soft chair that one of your grandkids is sitting on or playing nearby, or, or there's a really plush rug, or there's, you know, a lovely, maybe you're outside and there's a really nice bunch of trees and the the grass is good, but to notice not just the potential threats in the environment, but to also notice the things of delight or things of safety, even things that you identify with, with safety or with comfort or with being okay. And that's one, that's one way to practice even in, in our own environments is to start looking, if we find ourselves on high alert a lot, you know, okay, notice that's there and you're kind of looking for threats or danger, but can you also pick out five things that speak to a different part of your brain into your system that feel more pleasant? Mm-hmm. And, and even by something as simple as that, it's like, then we're starting to grow that ability to also hold, hold what feels pleasant, also to hold what feels good. You used the word titration a few times so far in our discussion, and I'd like you to define that for me. What does that mean? Basically, my understanding of titration, and I kind of mentioned the chemistry lab, is if you're doing um, an experiment in a lab, I don't know if anyone else took high school chemistry, but you only want to add one drop at a time. So it's basically a very, very slow process. So if you have a clear liquid and you add one drop of a pink liquid, you put the drop of the pink liquid in and then you wait and you see what happens. And you watch as that pink liquid sort of titrates and goes into the clear liquid, and then you observe and see what changes have been made. And so it's the same thing when we're doing this work. We want to try something in this gradual approach. That could be a definition, a gradual approach to change, um, where we're not trying to go in and go straight for the biggest thing. You know, if someone has had a trauma, we're not going to go right in and be like, tell me about this most horrible thing. We're going to start with the periphery or with the edges, and we're going to slowly build the system's capacity to eat, to be in the body, first of all, when things feel good, and then maybe start working more of like the scarier events or the events that weren't so good. So it's like one step at a time, one little step at a time. That's what I mean by a titrated approach. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. And I can see so many examples of that where we take baby steps towards the hard things and then feel like, wow, I can't believe I did that. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like Um, climbing a mountain. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or getting sober one day at a time, just one minute at a time sometimes. I want to back up a little bit. You were talking about, I wrote this down, it really struck me, feeling so stressed out that you thought it would, maybe you could just get hit a little bit (laughs) by a vehicle. I know, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know. Isn't that awful? I know for certain that I have had that thought uh, at different times in my life when I felt overwhelmed. And what I really wanted was some help and I didn't know how to ask for it. I wanted a pause button and I didn't know how to reach for it. And uh, so I just kept going. And I wrote down the word despair as you talked about Mm. that. And my question for you is how many people in this world do you think that we walk past every day that are in that state of despair and are are struggling like that. We feel like we're the only ones. Do you think it's more common than we than we know? I mean, I think it's so common. Like my heart hurts when I mm-hmm. think about it, honestly. I just, I think, you know, and I think part of it is we just aren't given any of these essential tools for life. Like I'm talking about, like, why aren't we teaching kids how to work with their nervous systems from a very young age so that we have some ways to manage this stuff? It's like, Western society dictates that success is we have a ton of money, we we work really hard, we climb this corporate ladder, and then that's somehow success, even though the people who are doing that are dying of heart attacks and have their own version of despair. It's just, it's, maybe that's a tangent too, but it's like, we're, we're, it's so backwards how we look at things. And so I think there is a huge disconnect between like people and themselves. And that leads to despair. There's a disconnect between people in the natural world and that leads to a sense of despair. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people feel that way. Maybe it's less than I think. I hope so. Well, I suspect there's a few people listening to us talk about this that are in that place right now. So my, my question for you is if you could go back and revisit yourself in that moment when you felt like that, if you could pull yourself out of that moment and treat yourself as a a client, what would you do? What would you offer, recommend to help yourself or anyone stuck in that feeling? Um, I mean, I would definitely find a, a therapist. Like I really wish I'd been seeing a therapist at that point in time or, or someone like that, like build a support system whether that's a therapist, whether it's uh, 12-step recovery, which is free and accessible to everyone. That's one of the, such beautiful things about it. Yeah. Gosh, what would I have told myself specifically? I think I would have said, you need to talk to your clinical instructor, get out of this particular rotation because it's not working and take, take a leave of absence, take a sabbatical at that time. Cause I was really just not in a good spot. And looking back, that would have probably all been fine. So maybe, you know, if there is someone that you can talk to, to actually shift some of the environmental stressors, if that's a possibility for you, definitely do that. But I mean, reach out because you're not alone. That's what I would say to anyone who's listening, who feels like that you're alone. You're not alone. Like, you know, so many of us feel that way or have felt that way. And there is support out there, but you do have to ask. And that can be scary. 
it's okay for it to be a little bit uncomfortable because the end result's going to be worth it just to have someone on your side and on your team. And even if it's just online support right now, there's so much of that and it's so great. Find support. When I think back to that time in my life, I would have to say that the, the voices in my head were strong and very believable. And what they were telling me was that if I let any piece drop or if I if I started crying, I would never stop. Mm. If I told someone I needed help, I would end up in a straitjacket in the psych wards. Like mm-hmm. I was really... I. I had such an inflated sense of importance to to holding it together that I really felt like if I let anything down, the whole, you know, house of cards would come crashing down. And when I look back on that, I I think that that convincing voice in my head was really the voice of my alcohol addiction that was that was leveraging my fear of failure to perpetuate addiction. I do think we have a part of our brain that believes very fully, okay, I need to keep this alcohol coming no matter what because this body is hooked on it. So I'm going to I'm going to think mm-hmm. whatever thoughts and say whatever I need to say to this brain to keep that alcohol coming even if it's stuff that isn't true. Do you think that that's how it works? Do I have I painted a a picture that seems at all true? Or is that how it felt for you? I love what you just said. It did feel that way. Like the whole house of cards was going to go down and everything would would be lost. You know, for me, I was in this final rotation of my doctorate and it was like, I couldn't even dream of, of saying like, pull me out of this rotation. I need to take a sabbatical, which is what ended up happening anyway. And it was great. Everyone worked for me. Everyone wanted to see me succeed, you know, as far as my school and my clinical instructors and everything. But at that time, yeah, it felt like so intense. And and I think even that intensity is part of the addiction. I think what you said is right on where it's just like, keep feeding me. Like, this is the way we have to go down with the ship, you know, but just keep the booze coming. Um, yeah, I think that was very well said and I relate to it a lot. I have a son who is hoping to start med school in the next year or two. And I'm really thinking about him as you talk about this and about the pressure that I would think anyone that's, you know, undergoing a big endeavor like that would put on themselves and thinking, oh, so many people have helped me do this and I worked so hard to get here. I can't stop now. I can't fail now. So as the people, as the support role players in a person's life, what can we do to be helpful and and convincing (laughs) to someone who we can see is struggling and might think that they have to keep going? That's such a good question. Um, I think being, you know, from kind of back to the somatic experiencing perspective, I think when we are regulated in our own bodies, that is very helpful to those around us um, because then they can kind of regulate to us. And that's not so much of a codependency thing at all. It's just more like when I'm in my my body and I'm okay. It helps for you to also have the invitation to be in your body and for you to be okay. So from that perspective, there's one, there's also a great book for med school in particular. God. And I think it's called like, so you want to go to med school or something. I'll find it and send it to you. Um, cause it might be useful for you and your son, but there's a whole chapter in it of like what family can do to be supportive. And so I think actual practical resources like that, that are written, um, you know, by people, who have been through the experience, those can be really helpful as well to, you know, read about here's what's, what somebody could have used who was going through that. 
Um, and it is, you know, as much as you can set up ahead of time, like if you can get systems in place ahead of time, like therapy ahead of time, or, you know, I don't know, even just like to take care of your basic needs of like having food or a place to do your laundry, you know, I don't know as a, as a parent or as a loved one, I think just being there, really letting them know you support them no matter what. I think that's, that's always good. You know, my mom did a lot of that for me and Mm -hmm. looking back, that was really helpful just to know she was always in my corner. I remember, uh, a neighbor telling me when my kids were young that the the best thing you can do for your loved ones is just to let them know that you're their biggest fan and, Mm -hmm. and not that, you know, you're, you're perfect in my eyes. It's not that it's that, you know what? I'm just here. And another friend, I remember telling her so proudly, I said to my child, and I love you no matter what. I'm always here for you no matter what. And she said very wisely, you know, you need to drop the no matter what part. You need to tell them, I love you and I'm here for you. Because the no matter what part is the judgment. It really says, no matter how much I disagree with you, or no matter how much you Mm -hmm. screw up, I'm still here for you. And I really had to ponder that and think about what a difference it is to say, I love you, period. I'm here for you, period. Yes. And then to just be that steady person beside beside yeah. your loved one, whatever they're going through, and and to let them know that, you know, that the, that's that's an unconditional uh, thing. I also had a, a therapist when I when one of my kids was going through some stuff and I, I talked to a therapist about how do you parent a a child going through depression or something hard. And her explanation was, you know, quit trying to cheer them up, quit trying to get them to go outside and, and have fun. Picture that they're sitting in the bottom of a dark hole. And if you're trying to fix it for them, you're basically shining a flashlight in their face and telling them to come out of the dark hole. When the comforting thing to do is to climb down in that hole and just sit with them in the darkness and, and be there. Yeah. And just let them know you're there and, Yeah, I think that's beautiful and and it is really right on. I think sometimes too, just I'm thinking about my own relationship, I guess, and I'll just sometimes I'll go and I'll sit next to my partner and hold his hand if I can tell he's had a hard day and I'll I'll just kind of sit there and hold his hand and I'll do a little stealth SE and I'll be all regulated and just just go like touch him and, but I won't say anything even, or I'll ask him, is there anything I can do for you right now to make your life easier? Okay. Break that down for me. Stealth SE. So that's stealth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's something my teacher talked about where, again, it's kind of like when I'm like co-regulated, but I can go and sort of put a hand on his back and maybe I'll do like a real gentle, like, you know, rubbing or I'll just hold. I sort of know through exploration, he doesn't really like if I touch him too fast, but if I just kind of pick a spot and like put my hand there, Maybe I'll do a little tiny bit of rocking, but I'll sort of look for cues that his system's calming down. Um, but, you know, I'm just sitting next to him really being very nice. Um, but yeah, I, I look at it with that lens a little bit, but I'm not trying to do like get him to do anything. I'm just like there as a presence. I just also sort of, you know, stealth, I see it a little bit. Because um, you know the effect that you can have on someone with touching them and, and, yeah. and sort of aligning your energies would, that sounds like a woo woo way to talk about it, but it's sort of, it is what you're talking about, right? Of getting on the same wavelength yeah. kind of, of bringing, of yes. connecting. There's, we can yeah. put it in soft language or, or. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, sure. There's, I mean, I can talk about it scientifically, but I think it really is. It's, it's kind of spreading the the calm sort of field, you know, energetic field around. I think there's something to that. I love that. 
I enjoy the way you talk about it, and uh, I I can I can hear the way your mind <laughs> works as you as you talk about these things. I also hear your enthusiasm for it and your enjoyment of what you do. It's fantastic. Can you tell our listeners how can they find you? How can they connect with you and learn more about what you do? Sure. Um, so I actually just did a, f- a little free training that's up on my website. It's about self-trust. It's just up there. It's like 20 minutes. So if people actually want kind of a, a structured way to learn a little bit about just to touch into this a little bit more, they can go and check that out. My website is uh, kirbymethodconsulting.com. And I'm very active on Facebook. I have a business page under the same name, Kirby Method Consulting, but I'm really active in my personal profile, which is just Alice Kirby. I have a Facebook group called The Self-Love Project, uh, which people are more than welcome to join. There's a good combo of uh, women in recovery. It's not a women's only group and it's not just for women in recovery. It's really, but there are a lot of women in recovery in there, but it's really, we pick a different topic each month as we go through the year and just, you know, I present research articles once a week. I lead a guided meditation once a week, kind of on the topic. And we encourage some discussion around it. Last month we worked with um, self-talk and how to really take a look at what's going on when we're talking to ourselves and how we can start to implement some nicer, more kinder self-talk. Um, and then this month we're working with movement and just bringing some joyful movement in. So people are welcome to come check the Facebook group out. Excellent. Okay. Um, and I'll put yeah. links for all of that in the show notes. Great. Also your podcast. Talk a little oh, bit yeah. about your podcast. It's called Beyond the Pink Cloud, and I interview guest experts on a variety of topics. Really, my whole goal with the podcast was for women in recovery um, who were kind of looking to move into the rest of their lives. And so I interview people who are experts in you know nutrition and gut health and movement and um, balance and burnout and you know, finances. Um, I have a guy who's lived with with uh, tribes all over the world. So we sort of talk about globalization and um, things he's learned from living in these tribal cultures, which was just a really interesting conversation. So I have a wide variety of fascinating people who come on and share with me really just different ways that we can move forward in our lives and, and be healthy and vibrant and, and um, make the most of our time here on the planet. Fantastic. Well, it's been wonderful getting to know you and chatting with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jean. It's been really nice. Now, listeners, if you would like to connect with Dr. Alice, you can either use the links in the show notes or find her on Facebook or on her website, which is kirbymethodconsulting.com. That's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that, not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from the power Weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame You're strong just cause you keep it on the side It just stays and wait there to rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine When you see the old, I did that Not proud that that was me and